Hello and welcome to the Who's He podcast. On this show, we're going to be talking about one of the greatest writers that Doctor Who ever had, and also one of the greatest writers that the Target novelizations ever had as well, and that is the late, great Malcolm Hulk. Now, joining me on this episode to discuss um, this great man is Michael Herbert, who, is, who has recently contributed to a book called Survival TV, uh, which is all about uh, science fiction television from the 1970s. And of course, his chapter is about Malcolm Hulk. So for the next half an hour or so, I'm going to be talking to Michael about Malcolm Hulk. So settle back and, well, hope you enjoy it. <laughs> So, Michael, welcome to the Who's podcast. Oh, welcome. Pretty... Thanks very much for inviting me, uh, Philip. That's okay. It's, it's a pleasure to have you here. So, um, so firstly, um, how did your sort of, what, what would you call it? Would you say it was a, um, a love affair with Doctor Who or just started watching <laughs> Doctor Who? Or... <laughs> when, when did it start for you? Um, 23rd November 1963. Ah, okay. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm so old, I actually watched the first one in 1963 when I was um, eight and two thirds. And, ah, okay. Um, it was kind of like nothing else on TV at the time. You know, it wasn't Blue Peter, it wasn't uh, Jack and Ori or whatever. So it was a kind of very unique kind of program which I became addicted to and <laughs> became. Also, it was on all the time. Some people forget how much Doctor Who was on in the 60s and up until sort of 1970. So it was on like 48 weeks a year, I think. So, Yeah, there was the, the, sort of the, the, the break between series was extremely small um, mm. at the time because they were sort of, you know, sort of churning out scripts um, all the time then, weren't they? So it was um, a real <laughs> sort of a, a big show for them. I imagine... Yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say, imagine sort of like there was nothing else like it at the time because even from the... The opening titles and the music. There was nothing yeah. else on television um, like it at the time, and it must have been a bit of a, a shock to people who first watched it on the twenty third of November, nineteen sixty three. Yes, I think so. Yes, so I mean, I was only, obviously I was had not seen things that there had been things like Quatermass in the fifties and A for Andromeda, but I would have been too young to watch them. I only became aware of them, you know. Yeah. Years, like. Exactly. Unfortunately, so, with Quatermass, we we can't see that anymore, can we? Uh, not the first series. The, no, uh, the second and the third one, the Quatermass, the second Quatermass, and Quatermass in the Pit, the uh, TV versions are available. Yes, well worth watching. Which are fantastic, actually. If, 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 if listeners haven't seen them, they are absolutely fantastic pieces yes, of television. Uh, Toby has Ocon to talk about them because he's kind of the expert on Quatermass. Yes, indeed, indeed. I think the first time he he, he guessed on this podcast, he was. Um, he was midway oh, right. through doing doing his um his book on mm -hmm. um on Nigel Neal, certain Quatermass. So uh, yeah, so but the other, uh, the, yeah, the thing that uh, made me interested in Malcolm Hulk was when the new series started. I started watching that again, and it was pleased to have it back. Although obviously it's quite different, but it's mm. still with Doctor Who. So exactly, I my heart is still with the classic series because that's what I grew up on. You know, William Hartnell, Pat Troughton, and John Pertwee, so on. So those are my, those are my kind of teenage years and so we kind of wow you know like it's a nostalgia to a certain extent bound up with growing up and watching this strange program and other things but simultaneously i was kind of watching doctor who and listening to the rolling stones and ed zeppelin and, <laughs> oh, yeah, and then by the time it was tom baker tom baker came along was going out to punk gigs so <laughs> i was going to say was, was there because it, it certainly happened for me in the 1980s I, my first exposure to Doctor Who was 1973 and it was the Green Death 
That's, oh, yeah. my, that's the first one I can remember watching. Mm-hmm. Um, but during the eighties, I sort of drifted away from it in the in sort of the Colin Baker. Is was mm-hmm. that the same for you in the Tom Baker era? You just sort of you sort of found other other interests. I did. I was a teenager. I found other interests. Yeah, I, at that I time. carried on watching it every Saturday because mostly. You were in before you went out to a gig. You had tea and watched Doctor Who, and then went out to the pub or to a gig or whatever, so you could easily fit it in. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think a lot of people drifted away in the Colin Baker years as well, perhaps. Or yeah, yeah. I think I think a lot of people did, unfortunately. <laughs> but then um, I got interested in the as because I'm, I'm a historian, not as a profession, but uh, mm. I suppose it is now. I'm sort of called myself a freelance historian now. I sort of worked in local government. For many years, but then retired and became had more time to pursue historical interests. Uh, yeah. I was kind of a historian of the left, so I became a socialist in the late 70s of rock against racism and other anti-Nazi, that kind of era. Yeah. Um, so I became sort of interested in history and write, researching history and writing history. Did my first book in the uh, early 90s, I think. Um, so I became interested in the history of the show. I started reading Doctor Who magazine. And then became kind of aware of Malcolm Hulk and obviously had seen his work, but hadn't particularly known about him. But then I, I was involved with a library in Salford that collects working class history called Working Class Library. Um, and I had a quick look through because I'd heard he was in the Communist Party and they have a very good communist history because it was founded by two communists, Ruth yeah. and Eddie Frau. Um, and they had one pamphlet by Ma- Malcolm Mack. About, which he did when he was working uh, or involved with Unity Theatre. Uh, and it's called Here is Drama. So it's a kind of introduction to Unity Theatre, which is a left-wing socialist theatre started in about 1936, I think. Uh, yeah. And uh, ran right up to 75 when the building burned down, sadly. Um, I thought a, lot, a lot of very well-known people kind of were involved with it over the years, including Malcolm Hulk mm. and Eric Pace, who we worked with. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of was aimed at kind of encouraging young people or just people generally to become involved in theatre. So Malcolm's pamphlet is about explaining what unity stands for, how to get involved, basically to say, well, you're part of it. And if you think something's going wrong, speak up. So it's right. one of his earliest writings. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, what, what I mean, when you sort of, because obviously you've contributed to this um, book, Survival TV, and you've also written a, a short um um, essay as well on, on Michael, uh, Malcolm Holt prior to that. Is it difficult trying to find out more information about him? Because there's, there's not a lot, because I've looked myself and there's not a lot out there because he's one of my favourite Doctor Who writers. Because um, to be honest, I probably read his target novelizations before oh, yes. yeah, before I um, actually saw them on, on, on television because obviously Doctor Who was never repeated um, back then. So... So that's how I got into his writing. I always thought he he's it was cut above the rest to, to for, for my liking. But apart from that, I didn't know anything else about him. So um what you wouldn't, ha- you wouldn't, ha- be, alone. You wouldn't be alone in that, Philip. Um no. yeah, <laughs> <laughs> not not finding out stuff. So I thought being in the Communist Party, because it, I thought oh, it'd be easy, quite easy to find something about him. But yeah. drew complete blank. <laughs> but I did find some things here and there, not enough to write a pamphlet about him in 2015, I think it was. Yeah. I did a blog post about him, and then that was turned at the request of Five Leaves Press into a pamphlet called Doctor Who in the Communists. That's so right. Paper, yeah. So I did find some things out about him and um, and guessed a few things which I got right, some things I got wrong, <laughs> <laughs> whatever. 
and I kind of uh, analyzed his work and through a kind of perspective of what is he trying to say in his uh, his work. And yeah. then the sort of pandemic came along. So I kind of forgot about it. The pandemic came along and I had obviously a lot of st- spare time. <laughs> <laughs> so I then started to uh, look into him in more depth. And um, luckily, one of the good things about the internet, there are a lot of bad things. One of the good things is access to newspapers. Mm. So the British newspaper archive, which you do have to pay for, but it's worth it, enabled uh, to me to look at the stage and other newspapers, which covered quite a lot about Malcolm's writings in the 60s. Um, and then I discovered the BBC archive would uh, send you scripts if you gave them a bit of cash. <laughs> so of course, yes. Accumulated <laughs> scripts. Uh, the Doctor Who ones have clearly been available online for many years, but uh, mm. um, and also um, found out he wrote a a script for a program in the sixties called "I Never Went to School," which had quite a lot about his early life because he didn't go to school. No, he grew up in uh, in a kind of rackety family. Well, just his mother. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, yeah, because he was um, sort of born out of wedlock, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. Um, something he didn't discover until he was about seventeen. So. And again, in a sense, I think although I'm wary of over-analyzing people's work through a psychoanalysis, mm. you could see him as an outsider, you know, and um, and also that uh, you think things are one thing and you have a sort of belief, oh, this is my father, and that he's not your father. So I'm thinking, yeah. of calling, thinking of calling my book about him if it gets published, Nothing is What It Seems, which is a quote from uh, the um, the Faceless Ones. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, how, how is that? How is the research for the book or the writing for, for the book about Malcolm Holt going at the moment? Yeah, it, yeah. Uh, well, I've done, I've done a lot of work, so I've gone right. I've done, done stuff about his early life. Also, made finally made contact with people who knew him. Um, Katie Manning met him when yeah. he was working on Doctor Who. So she didn't have huge memories because, but she did meet him a couple of times in the bar. I think the famous bar on top of the uh, BBC. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah, there's many, many a tale from there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I made contact with his nephew, um, mm. Anthony, who's still around, and uh, was very helpful. Kindly sent me copies of some documents, letters that Malcolm written, uh, including some very interesting letters he wrote during the war when he had nothing much to do except, except avoid the bombings. Yes. It's <laughs> quite revealing. So they, um, also somebody sent me a family bulletins he wrote when he was a teenager. So I started to accumulate information from mm. different sources. So that was very useful. And spoke to Anthony, spoke to a couple of other people who met him, Paul Simpson, a couple of days ago. Met him in the sort of about 76. They kind of just phoned up Terence Hicks and Terence Dix and said, can we come around and see you and talk about Doctor Who? Yeah. And then he, and then he sort of passed, said to him, why don't you go around and see my friend Malcolm? So they used to visit him. And oh. uh, we t- they talk about the target books that you mentioned. And he would explain, you know, they wanted to make them diff- rounded stories, he said. Yeah. So the scripts weren't a Bible. They were just a starting point. You would often change them to, to create. But writing novels is a, an art in its own right. I mean, I think Malcolm was very keen on the idea of writers being respected. That uh, you can have all the wonderful actors you like, but if they turn up, there's no script. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, so looking at his, his early involvement, Doctor, because obviously he he wrote for things like Armchair Thriller um, before, which which, which uh, Armchair Theatre, sorry, um, which I didn't know had been going on for that for that long because I remember it growing up in the seventies. It was well, I think it was Armchair Theatre, Armchair Thriller was, right, was, was yeah. like the late night version, wasn't it? Um, mm. And um, which the titles of which used to scare the hell out of me when I, when I was a kid. <laughs> um, 
but yeah, I mean, it, but it, it's weird, sort of like the the the, the YouTube video you sent me um, of that one he did was featuring Stanley Baker uh, oh, from, yes, 19, from 1958. Yeah. It's the amount of Doctor Who connections within that because it was Sidney Newman was involved um, in that as yeah. well. So. Well, he was brought over from Canada, where he'd made yeah. his mark, and then ATV, ABC rather, recruited him, and then he became head of their drama department. I think um, Armchair Theatre had started, but he made it much more vital, mm. and brought in new writers, wanted to make it relevant to society. But it's on every week. So again, there's a huge demand for writers when you have a series that's on, on all the time. And so you probably... I think the turnaround in TV was much quicker. You know, you got a date a couple of weeks ago, a month over a month. We need something for that. Right, write this. Let's get rehearsing. Yeah. I think the gap between, uh, I was reading about the Avengers, the gap between them thinking of the Avengers and putting it on was about six weeks. Wow. So you can't imagine anything go, you know, today. I know, I know exactly. I know, sort of like I mean, I mean, just to sort of film something, it takes about nine months these days. And that's, that's by then the scripts would have been written and. Yeah, it's, it's incredible what goes into television now. But His first um, success or first thing he got on TV was in 58 with Eric Pace. So they mm. worked together for a number of years. Um, with uh, this, this Day in Fear, which is about an IRA member on the run, because the IRA was quite well known to people in the 50s for various yeah. reasons. Um, so they had Patrick McGowan playing the major of the main role, you know, as an amazing actor. Yes. Was working all the time in the 50s. So sadly, it's not available, though I have got the script. Um, and then he reported, again, the Sydney Newman connection, because they, they liked what they'd done for Armchair Theatre. He yeah. and Eric were commissioned to write a science fiction story, which sounds very similar, the remit is to Doctor Who. The idea was to teach children about science and the universe. Uh, so it's about um, this is the days when you think such, such things were possible. A British rocket <laughs> expedition to the moon. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which clearly, obviously, obviously, would never happen. But uh, people actually thought it was a possibility in the fifties. Perhaps it didn't seem such a mad idea as it would it, now. No, I suppose. Like, I suppose you're, again, it sort of links back to Quatermass with the with the mm. British rocket group, really. Oh, which is right, yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was um, a lot of similar lines. Exactly. Uh, so they wrote, um, I think it was four series altogether. The first one's vanished, but the other three are available. So in the first one, a little boy, Jimmy, gets sort of replaced as an astronaut by mistake almost and gets shot off around the moon, comes back successfully. And then in the second one, they go to the moon and land and they go to Venus and then they go to and they go to Mars as well. So yeah. they wrote three series and because it was popular, they kind of just carry on writing. So again, the turnaround is very quick. You know, People have liked our series, right? And then in six weeks' time, we want to start the sequel. Wow! It's yeah, because I mean, story. I was going to say because really, it was sort of it was almost like filming. It was almost like live theatre in those days, wasn't it? Television. You you basically had one take, and uh, as, as you can see from the early surviving episodes of Doctor Who, really, or, or any any television of that era, really, you can see the there's the odd, odd sort of like the bump into a bit of furniture, the odd lime fluff, and it just stayed in because they just didn't have the time to re-record it, did they? No, well, there literally was live to start with in the early years. Of yes, it was, yeah. Up until video came around about 58, 59. But before that, uh, I think it was just done live. I mean, the, the surviving, um, I think it's 1954 version of 1984 with Peter Cushing. Yes. Was done live. But the, and I think the second repeat was filmed, which is why you can see it. Indeed. That's, that's amazing to think, actually. That it's sort of like your live, the live version was so popular, they remounted the production. 
mm. again to do it live again, um, which is that is just theatre. It's not television, really, is it? <laughs> well, yeah, to, I mean, obviously, the actors have to run and rush around a set between sets in a studio. And, yeah, uh, I mean, about the, when they were doing armchair theatre, when Barry Lambert was working on it, I think that's how she got to know Sydney Newman. Mm. Um, during in the course of a live broadcast, um, I think it was about an underground accident. Yeah. One of the actors collapsed and died. No. They had to kind of improvise. They didn't stop the, the show. They just carried on. And it kind of, I know he's quite a big character. They somehow <laughs> overcame this and kept <laughs> going. Um, I don't think many people noticed either, which is extraordinary. That's, uh, no, that's extraordinary. <laughs> that is extraordinary. So, I mean, obviously, um, how, I mean, for what you found out, how did he become involved with Doctor Who? Again, because Sidney Newman, by the time that Patrick yeah. Troughton had come in, sort of Sidney was sort of gradually sort of moving away from the show, really, wasn't he? So um, well, he was involved with it quite early on. So yeah, Sidney Newman comes over to, to BBC uh, because of his success over there on the on the IT on the uh, independent television and starts work in January '63, I think, at the BBC. Yeah, that bit of drama. So he's not very impressed by drama. It completely changes the way it works. Um, yeah, definitely. Stop using just one script department that produces all the scripts and start sort of saying what well, to producers. Well, you find the writers, so you're in charge. It's your program. You find the writers. Uh, so that meant other people could get involved. But they, I think, because um, you even knew Malcolm Hulk and Eric Pace, they were invited to. Uh, although Eric Pace never worked, never wrote for TV, but certainly Malcolm submitted a script very early on in the first series. Uh, called about the Romans leaving Britain in 410 AD, I think it was. Or was it called 408 AD, I think it's called. Yeah. They weren't kind of seriously looking at it to start with, and it was sort of being marked down to be in the first series, but then they kind of changed their minds and it got pushed back. And in the end, it never got used. I think they also had their own Romans eventually, as, as you know, Romans uh, written by somebody's name escapes in smoke. Dennis Spooner. Yes, very well. Yes. Yes. The <laughs> um, kind of comedy stroke. Uh, approach to the Romans, although it has got sort of chilling parts in it, the slavery and the murder and so on. So yeah, that, yeah. yeah I'd, I'd like to see Malcolm Hulk's version or take on the Romans because the Dennis yeah. Spooner version, as, as, it's it's a very weird serial, that one, because it, as you quite rightly say, it's played for laughs. It's almost like a, 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 a stage farce. Mm. And then the last episode, it turns very, very dark yeah. with, all, right. with all the murder and everything. Yeah, it's yeah. Um, it's a strange, strange story, that one. Toby is currently doing it on his podcast, which is, I think he's got a very interesting sort of thing to say about it, so I recommend it to people. Yes, that was a fantastic about. podcast, actually. Um, Toby um, so they, I think it's also put up various ideas. I think another idea was that they land on a place which looks like the earth but isn't. So there are things that are different to it. You know, the birds fly backwards and there are some other differences. So I'm not quite sure where the drama was in it. Um, so that didn't get found much favour. But finally, he and David Ellis wrote the the faceless ones in the yes. Patrick era. So that's the first time they get on, which is a very interesting. Again, it's about deception. I think this is a common theme in Otto's work. So the people who appear to be humans, although it's not a sort of totally new idea, I mean, it's a famous um, film in the 50s about people being replaced by aliens, which are yes. from pods. That's right, Invasion of the Body Snatchers, yes. <laughs> the, the original yeah. version is really, the, the original film version is really interesting, I think, and it follows the novel very closely. Uh, but I think it was done very well. I was watching it today, I was making notes on it. Yeah. And then he did the war games, obviously, uh, with Terence Dix. So he knew Terence Dix. Uh, and they'd worked together on the Avengers in the early 60s. So 
kind of kind of key um, TV series that would have got you very well known because it had a huge audience, even in yeah. the original. The kind of he wrote mostly his episodes in what I would call the Honor Blackman years, when uh, Honor Blackman played the first companion to throw men across the room. That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I mean, obviously, I've. Um... Obviously, you can get the animated version of, of of the faceless ones, and I think it, it obviously it does. Obviously, it's one of, it's one of the many missing stories mm. uh, from that time. Uh, it's it's certainly interesting, as you say. It is all about deception. I think it's a it's a very very good story actually, mm-hmm. um, and I think most of the time with with these stories, there's always a, like a little. It's like you said that nothing is what it seems. There is always a little twist. Um, in in these stories, and in this one, it's the same with this. The aliens aren't—they're not really the bad guys as such, are they? No, but they have a reason to be doing what they're doing, even though they've been killing. They're fairly kind of—they try and kill the doctor several times. Yes, they do. <laughs> but you say there is a reason for it, exactly. There is a bomb, which is always in our way, right? Get rid, get rid of him. But yes, they do have a reason for what they're doing, and so I think they get that part of with one exception, his approach to writing aliens is, well, they have their own viewpoint. Uh, and yeah. You, you can't just, they're rarely black and white. They're often sort of shades of grey because even the good guys aren't always the good guys. Obviously, in the Silurians at the end, the Brigadier blows them all up. So Yes, indeed. Indeed. Uh, in a sense, of the, alien, the Silurians and the humans are equally, you know, suspicious of each other. And there are kind of ones that want to make peace, like the Doctor. Mm. and a Silurian leader and then there are other people who want to to win but they kind of and the same the same with uh, the sea devils there's, all, there's usually a scene where the doctor tries to negotiate a peace in a lot of Malcolm's work in the Silurians in the sea devils uh he goes to see the draconian emperor doesn't he in, that's uh, right he does yeah in frontier of space which is kind of an analogy of the cold war I think really yeah yes it is it. yeah uh so that's often a theme in his work that the the people in it have their own reasons for what they're doing. Obviously, there are exceptions. There are Daleks. Just want to kill everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the other exception is the War Games, which I think is his kind of best, well, my favourite series that he wrote because it's so interesting and complex and plays around with history. But the aliens there are really just, you don't know who they are. They're, we never find out what the aliens are called. No. Uniquely in Doctor Who. You never find out what their planet is called. They just call it the home planet. And they just have titles like the security chief, the war chief, the warlord, etc., etc. And they are completely pitiless about what they're doing, which, again, I think is Malcolm's take on what war is, that the people who run wars really don't give a damn about, or they claim to, uh, about the soldiers. They may say, oh, well, they're heroes, but actually, it's particularly when you think, of, I think about the First World War and the Boer War and other wars. Well, exactly. I, th- I think... Do you think that's one of the reasons why he, he one of the, the the zones he picked from, from history was really the First World War because it was generals moving troops around like pieces on a chessboard. Really, it, it was so they were so disconnected from what was really happening on the battlefield and the a- absolute waste of yeah. of human life that was ha- going on at the time. It didn't seem to care. No, Any of them. Sort of 40 miles behind the lines in a chateau with, uh, you know, champagne for lunch and a chicken and whatever. So it yeah. which kind of mirrors the, the central headquarters of the aliens controlling the games because they're just kind of literally moving things around on the board, aren't they? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly that. 
Um, but then, of course, I, I don't know if this was his idea or this was forced upon him because what was going to happen with um, with John Pertwee's first season where um, obviously the Doctor sought help from the Time Lords, um, which again, I think is probably the best time or the best story that w- with the Time Lords because they were mysterious and they were all powerful mm-hmm. and the Doctor was scared of them. So even with his own race of people, mm-hmm. The story had him fearful of his own of his own kind as well, which I thought was really interesting. It never really, it never really happened again after that. To no, my, to my view, they've never been. I say the very first um, in an unearthly child, although they say, "Well, we left our planet." They don't explain why, and they no. don't bother to explain it because, in some sense, you didn't need to. It was just on this uh, voyage into space and time. Uh, but then, obviously, they thought, well, we need to do something that's, uh, I know, let's come up with this idea of Time Lords to explain why the Doctor left and their, their sort of non-interference. He yeah. sees it as being a lack of morality. So there's an interesting argument there about should you interfere? And if so, why? In other people's lives. Exactly. I mean, Doctor always did it for, for, for good reasons, which mm. I think that at the end of the story, the Time Lords went, yes, we can understand that, but... <laughs> um, you know, you're still going to be punished for this, and it, then it led into the the Pertwee um, era. So, do do you think the Pertwee era, with the introduction of things like unit and basically sort of the military angle, do you think oh. that sort of played right into Malcolm Holt's strengths, really? Because a lot of his, because mm-hmm. um, obviously that, that was the, that was all that was all part of the story. That it was it was unit, or the, or the the army would come in and take over from unit for mm-hmm. whatever reasons, and they're never to be trusted. No, it's, they have to make, the doctor makes sarcastic comments about the military mind and, you know, their response is to shoot first and ask questions later. So, yeah. There are lots of kind of um, snipes at bureaucracy and the military minds. <laughs> <laughs> he's working with the parameters that he's been given. So they've got the unit thing. So he obviously, but within that, he's, he's kind of playing around with um, his, his kind of views, I suppose, on society, on bureaucracy. Yeah, I it's uh, I think it's Terence Dix in an interview on the the um, I think it's on the DVD of the War Game says that you know that uh, Malcolm never never trusted the establishment. <laughs> and, no, that's um, no, that, that's uh, that no, that's never a true word said actually. To be <laughs> never, because um, even it's not just the military he's, he's got in his sights there. It's also the um, one thing I, I loved. In the Pertwee era, was the the stuffy government official? Oh yes, would, would arrive to take charge and then balls it up completely. <laughs> you know, so. like in the the Sea Devils. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. I mean, it, the, the, that minister's first thing is just well, blow them up, attack, destroy, yeah. launch the missiles. You know, it's, uh, demanded uh, the the, um, the, uh, the the young woman, main naval officer, getting breakfast and marmalade and stuff. So it's oh. Kind of, <laughs> I know, is it? <laughs> but, but also, it wasn't just, I mean, obviously that was a theme in others, you know, like in uh, the Autons, isn't it? The, uh, the Axons, sorry, the Axonite. Oh, I'm Mr. Chin, yes. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, I better sell off the world in return for Axonite. <laughs> 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 there are other writers who pursue some of these things as well, so it isn't unique to, um, to Malcolm, but I think he writes some of the more interesting Certainly, ones that reflect, um, like in uh, Colony in Space, is about the nuclear dangers of nuclear warfare, really, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Sometimes he was looking back to the very first, the, the first Dalek one, where you also have a a planet devastated by a nuclear war. 
yeah, I, I suppose at the time, well, you say you suppose to say the same thing now. Actually, we seem to re- return to those those Cold War days where everyone's sort of saber saber rattling. But I think it was never more um, prevalent than it was in the sort of like the sixties and mm. and seventies. Really, it was it's very much on, on people's minds, and um, I suppose it, it was that that thing. Can can we trust the people in charge to stop this from happening? Mm. Um, the last one that uh, Malcolm wrote for Doctor Who. Um, was about the sort of um, I thought people trying to get back to an illusory golden age when things will be better. Yeah, the time scoop thing. Uh, we'll sort of send the whole world back. So I think it was some sense of the critique for um, critique in some sense of the environmental movement that were kind of rejected all of society. Mm. And he kind of saying, I think the doctor says so, like you know, take what you've got and try and make it better. Yeah, and the problem you know the problem is greed. Not necessarily so. Um, but that's the last thing he really ever wrote for TV. I mean, he wrote a lot of Crossroads, hundreds of episodes of Crossroads. <laughs> well, so did Terence Dix. I think a lot, of, a lot of, um, a lot of people cut their, cut their eye teeth at, at Crossroads. I know, I know Philip Hinchcliffe did um, yeah. back in the days. Wendy Pabry appeared on Crossroads in the sixties. So um, yeah, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was just basically a very way of earning money. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's tightly storylined. And because it was on every day, they need a huge amount of text, you know, a huge amount of script, rather. Yeah. Um, so you could probably dash off an episode in, you know, a couple of hours each week or something. So, but after that, he stopped writing for TV. I think partly because the people he knew in TV had moved on. So, you know, you know Barry Letts and Terence Dix were no longer running Doctor Who. And mm. the kind of series he'd written for The Avengers, um, Danger Man, The Protectors, and other ones had gone. Yeah. And got a new sort of style of action adventure, like The Sweeney and uh, Professionals, which I don't think would have been really in tune with. So he wrote, as you know, mentioned the Target novels, mm. which were very popular. Uh, probably earned more than he did on TV because they sold in huge numbers. Also wrote Crossroads number. I think it's one of his Crossroads novels sold 100,000. I didn't know they did novels of Crossroads. That's yeah. I think wow. I've got four. He wrote four, which I've got. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, that's that's, that's yeah. amazing. Well, that's, that's sort of the, that was the era of the of the kind of tie-in novel. So, virtually every series that was on TV had some kind of tie-in novel that followed it up because you would never see it again. No, well, exactly. Eight. As I say, that that was my those novelizations was my window into, you know, the Pertwee era the ones i hadn't seen um obviously before i was born or just too young to remember um and also all, all of the the hartnell and, and Troughton era that that was my window in, into into classic who then but um the same for we, other, we, like the um a frown drama most of which has been wiped apart from hmm. one episode i've got the novel that john elliott and uh, and fred did um i think it was mostly done by john elliott so that's a way you had a yeah. Finding out about TV series that had long since vanished. <laughs> exactly, it's, it's true. It's absolutely true. One thing we we do cover the target novelizations on the, on this podcast. And we did do Invasion of the Dinosaurs um, oh, yeah. a few a few years ago. And um, one thing that sort of struck the pair of us as we, we, were, we were discussing it was the fact that he he did such a good job with the novelization because I think everyone remembers that story for for the for the dinosaurs. Now, our mm-hmm. they didn't look very good on, on television. The novelization, the dinosaurs are secondary to the plot. Mm. They barely feature in it. 
Um, and I think it works. It, I mean, the story I think would work equally as well without any dinosaurs in it. Yeah, I think it's such a, a such a fantastic story. Yeah, they've come up with some other way of clearing everybody out of. Uh, well, I suppose in some sense, um, Web of Fear was another way of how how do we get rid of everybody in London? I know we we'll have this kind of strange stuff that's going in the in the uh, the, the underground tunnels. Yeah, exactly. Really a plot device. Like, how can we get people to all leave London at one time? I know, let's have dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> nice but, if you've got the budget for it. It works fine <laughs> as a book, but <laughs> on paper it looks fine. But <laughs> No, it's a shame. And of course, that was his last, um, as you said, that was, that was his last contribution um, mm. to, to Doctor Who. And I suppose, you know, that, as you said, uh, yeah, that Barry Letts had left and, and, and Terence Dix had left as well. Um, did, did work as scriptwriter on a series called Spider's Web. Which mm. was on in about seventy-two, which had uh, Anthony Ainley um, as a kind of uh, secret agent. That's kind yeah, of, which I've got, but uh, I don't think anybody else remembers it. <laughs> no, I certainly don't remember that one. <laughs> <laughs> I really don't. But uh, yeah, so um, I think I, I think it's a shame he never, he never did get the chance to write more. Actually, because mm. um, I went into more of the less sort of political sort of sort of stories. He went more into sort of the gothic horror. Yeah. aspect with with under philip hinchcliffe um yes, i can't see his work fitting into that really I no i can't i can't really um i don't think it's ever approached the obviously also new producers want to have their own writers don't they so yeah so even if your work was appreciated at the time well, there's a kind of new room and in some sense that doctor who renews itself through you know new producers new directors and new writers so that's part of the process would, would yeah. you would you reckon he would he would if he was alive today? Um, do you think his style of writing, sort of like writing a, a, a plot with a um, sort of with a political angle, or, or it's more of like a, a social um, angle to it? Um, they tried to do that in, re, in the, the recent series, um, yeah, and I found I found it a bit clunky the way they've done it. They sort of stopped the story, yeah. gave a little lecture, and then carried on with the story. And I felt he wove that into the story much more effectively do you think yeah. do you think he, that style of writer would, would work with with the show now um i'm not sure i'm not a writer myself so <laughs> you have to get on a proper script <laughs> answer that question philip said he astutely dodging the question <laughs> <laughs> well, i mean there are different styles i mean obviously doctor who in the past even was quite slow at the time yeah As i grew up on it it doesn't bother me really i think sometimes i think the modern stories of 45 minutes is much too short I yes, they, agree. They allow themselves to stretch out. In some sense, um, the uh, some of the recent ones with Jodie Whittaker, when they sprawled it over, well, not sprawled, but stretched it over six flux, I thought was very good. Yeah. Because I think I had time to develop the story. Um, and so you got to sort of follow characters through a whole series of different things. So I don't... Uh, yeah, as, 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 cho- as choppy as that was, I think, again, COVID did mm. play a lot um, into there to sort of cut a lot of... Yeah. Um, things from it so um but no it's, it's no it's very interesting talking to you michael because um it's it's one of my michael hulk's one of my favorite mm. um writers from that period of doctor who he, he's written some of my favorite novelizations as well and he um and what i loved about his his writing it was never sort of a direct translation of the script into a no. book he always added something to it um which, which i thought was wonderful and I think very, very, very sadly missed. Yeah, I think it's a shame that he died quite young. Yeah, he was only fifty-four. Yes, uh, so he could have done other things. Whether he'd moved, whether he got back to TV, I don't know. I mean, I'd say he was making quite a lot of money out of 
quite um, different sorts of writing. Yes. <laughs> uh, I've got some of them up here, Parliamentary Guide, quite chunky. Yeah. And they also produced, oh yeah, reduced, I said he's very keen on writing, and the writers being valued, so he's very instrumental, him and Ted Willis, Eric Pace and others, David Whittaker, in mm. setting up the Writers Guild of Great Britain. Yes. And demanding that the companies, particularly ITV, start paying them some decent wages. Yeah. Because <laughs> they were making huge amounts of money out of the adverts, though. Of course they were. Of course so they were. Yes. Their original um, motto, I don't think they use it anymore, sadly, was uh, from the Bible, in the beginning was the word. <laughs> <laughs> well, from, uh, Revelations, I think. Oh, well, that's that's uh, that's a fantastic motto to have, have for a, a guild of writers. That really is. <laughs> and he did write two, two guides for the writers and also wrote um, a guide to Doctor Who with Terence Dix. Yes. And right. a volume on writing for television. So I think the other thing he was keen on was demystifying TV and explaining to people, well, it may look complex in some sense it is, but yeah. here's the way through it. And he explained in huge detail in writing for television. So much so that if you wanted to write for a 1970s TV, you could very much <laughs> TV series. You could do that very just by following with the guide, and it did influence people. I think. Oh, that's brilliant! Uh, and the Carmel cited it to me anyway when he I was in contact with him about my project. So. Yeah, so that's one of one of his influences. Fantastic! So, thank you very much for inviting me onto the program. No, that's fine. Yes, I say we we unfortunately have, have run out of time. So um, thank you very much, Michael, for um, for, for joining us today. And yeah, happy um, to come back any time and chat about Doctor Who or any other science fiction. Yes, indeed, indeed. We'll sort of, we'll, we'll get you back on as, as soon as possible. So uh, well, thanks again, Michael. Thank you for okay. coming. Thank, thank you. you. my thanks once again to Michael for joining me on this show and if you'd like to uh, purchase uh, Survival TV there are links to purchase this from Amazon in the show notes so that's it for another week Um, hopefully Paul and I will be back uh, towards the end of this month uh, with a big finished review we haven't decided what yet Uh, we will get our act together at some point so until next time bye for now Thanks for listening. You can download this podcast from iTunes, Amazon Podcasts, Spotify, and through your podcatcher of choice. If you would care to leave us some feedback on iTunes, that would be very much appreciated. You can also find us on Twitter at who's underscore he underscore podcast, on the Who's He Podcast Facebook group, and through our website, who's hyphen he hyphen podcast.co.uk.